Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. Smart Investing Show, I'm Brent Wilsey. Great to have you here uh, every Saturday talking about the uh, investing, the economy, all these important things to help you grow your net worth. I am the president of a Wilsey Asset Management for, gosh, been having a uh, Run that company for 40 years now. So uh, love managing money, love working with the economy and investing. So that's what we're here to share with you on the Smart Investing Show, many different things as well. Uh, with me today, I do have uh, Harrison Johnson. Uh, Harrison, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, back here week two. Week yeah, two week, week two. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're going to be talking about the economy, talking about uh, U.S. advantages that we have over China, talking about snacking the U.S. I, I saw this. And I just had to do it because it talks about business and we always talk about long-term investing. This was definitely long-term investing, and the Twinkies keep just coming on through. And then we do want to address the stock market a little bit. And then you have a, a great uh, topic, too, that we talked about this in the office, uh, premium finance life insurance. Wow, that sounds great. But it's really not, is it? It's. I think it's interesting. Interesting. So, there we go. Yeah, that's yeah. a good word for it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and then what we'll be doing after that, we'll be taking your calls. Uh, phone numbers here. 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. When you call in, you have a equity you're maybe looking at investing in or selling or buying. Uh, we'll look at all the fundamentals for you, such as the valuation ratios, what you're paying for the earnings, the cash flow, the book value, also to the growth, how are they growing their earnings or sales. We will look at the pay a dividend, how much the dividend they use to, or how much the earnings they use to pay out that dividend. Uh, very important, the, uh, the balance sheet, uh, make sure you got a strong company or they're not one that's going to go bankrupt on you next uh, six months or so. Look at the returns, the earnings going forward. Really try to point in the right direction if you have a good company uh, equity that is worth holding on to or buying, or maybe it's time to sell that because uh, the debt level is too high. Uh, these are things we look at for you. So phone numbers again, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. We'll start accepting calls probably in well, about 10, 15 minutes here. But let's talk about the advantages that the U.S. Uh, does have here. And I, I always enjoy seeing an advantage of the United States over China. Uh, in the recent book, Chip War, uh, written by Chris Miller, he writes that across the entire semiconductor supply chain, including chip design, intellectual property, tools, fabrication, and other steps, the Chinese only has a 6% market share. Now, that compares to 39% for the U.S., South Korea at 16%, and Taiwan at 12%. The author also points out as China pushes forward with cloud computing, autonomous vehicles, and AI, its market share will continue to grow. The x86 server chips will be the workhorse of modern data centers, which are dominated by AMD and Intel. It's very interesting when I, when I read this book, and, and uh, because you get worried. That you know we're going to be taken over by China. China's a strong economic power now. They're, they they can do all these things to us. You you realize how important over the years technology has become, 
And it's not so much that Taiwan is like the major factor and China's going to take over Taiwan. We still have a lot of good th things here in the U.S. We can't sit back and put our feet up and, and relax. we got to keep pushing forward, which was one thing I was happy to see. And, and uh, you know, I, I knocked the administration many times, but I was happy to see, oh, shoot, they, they, I think it was called the CHIP Act uh, that, that they did because we need to have that. I usually like to have government stay out of the picture. But we are competing worldwide. Mm -hmm. We do need the government in there to help uh, our companies, you know, innovate and uh, research and development and, and stay ahead of that curve. Because if we fall behind, the thing that people don't realize, a lot of this attaches to the military. And if you don't have a strong technology side, your military is not that strong because they have, you know, bombs now and the, these rockets and these missiles that could, you know— buy chips, uh, you know, find their, their target very easily and hit pretty much on the nose. I mean, it's just amazing. It's all through technology. It's not just because the bombs just blow up big. It's a technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, United States military is the strongest in the world because of the technology that we have. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're superior on every, every force. And, you know, it, you said, Brent, that um, it's important to have in this case, a little bit help from the government. I mean, when we look at China, the Chinese government is definitely helping all the Chinese companies. I think 100%. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's um, they're one and the same. And so, you know, when we look at China as, you know, an average area of the United States, it's um, it's good to see that news that we, um, we're, we're still quite a bit ahead in, in areas as opposed to, you know, you always hear China, China, China. They're, they're doing this, they're doing that. But, um, you know, the U.S. still has a lot of advantages, um, but that doesn't mean we can slow down. We, we need to keep on capitalizing and keep moving forward. Yep, yep. And, and I would re recommend the book again. It's called Chip Wars, uh, written by Chris Miller. Uh, it was kind of a, a long book, but it, it was, I think, like 400 pages or something. But it's just very interesting. It, it brought you all the way back from the um, from the 50s, actually, when that technology started. So it was a interesting book. Again, Chip Wars, uh, Chris Miller. Uh, pick it up. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, let's talk about snack in the U.S. because I, I, I can't remember the last time I had a Twinkie, but apparently I'm in the minority. The snack business overall is up 8% uh, in the U.S. in the past two years with consumers eating three or more sack, snacks a day. Uh, overall, U.S. snacks increased by 11% last year to a total, I, I couldn't believe this number when I saw it, $181 billion in the U.S. was spending on snacks. Uh, the demand has led to 1 million Twinkies being produced each day. I don't know who's eating all these Twinkies, <laughs> but there's a million being produced a day. Uh, this could be why J.M. Smucker recently paid uh, this number correct map as well. They paid $4.6 billion for Hostess Brands, which uh, over the last 15 years has filed bankruptcy twice. Twinkies were started back in the 1920s by James Dewar, who delivered pound cakes from a horse-drawn carriage. If you want to know where the name Twinkie came from, Mr. Dewar, 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 I Dewar, think Dewar, yeah. Dewar. Like, like Dewar is Scotch. Dewar, okay. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Dewar came up with the idea after passing a billboard for Twinkie Toe Shoes. He thought Twinkies would be a great name for a snack. Hostess, which owns Twinkies, filed for bankruptcy back in 2004 and again in 2012 after the company failed due to a strike over a labor deal with the Bankers Union. Bakers Union. It looks, um, it looks like this time being owned by J.M. Smucker, Twinkers will last longer. You may not know this, but they also prolonged the life of a Twinkie from 26 days to now they will last on the shelf for 65 days. 
I guess we'll have to try Twinkie and bring back the days of the school lunches when we were kids. I, I'm far older than you are, but I remember in, in grade school, yeah, Twinkies. Like, oh, I got Twinkies in my, my lunchbox. Now, you are you probably went to school probably in grade school probably about 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 30s now. So, um, But, I mean, when I was a kid, Twinkies were... A big thing. We'd have big sales, and uh, I okay. would always want to get the Twinkies. And I thought Twinkies lasted forever. It says that they have a shelf life of 65 days. I thought that was the thing where they could you know, last a 1,000 years, and they'd be exactly the same. And I think there was another snack that was for, I don't know if it was Ding Dongs or whatever, but Twinkies, yeah. I mean, this is a sh- the shelf life. And I think those were the old ones. I think they have improved the quality of the Twinkies. So I hope so. I, mean, I, 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 I don't think... want to eat something that can last forever. <laughs> I, I think when I leave here today, I might have to go by the store and, and, and try out the Twinkies. But there was just so much in the story when I read it about the longevity and, and how the name came about. And, and what really came up, too, that was how they, you know, filed bankruptcy twice, and we're going through this right now, once from the Baker's Union because of labor. Mm -hmm. And we're going through that now with the entertainment industry, with the auto industry. I mean, labor, you know, yes, we want everybody to make a lot of money, but a business is a business, and sometimes you can't pay everybody a lot of money. You have to realize that, hey, we can only charge this amount for a Twinkie. We can't charge, you know, $2 for a Twinkie and pay, you know, everybody high wages you just can't do that so well you can do it just <laughs> just not very long <laughs> there you go there you go and uh and, and that is what happened with with twinkie the, the bakers and uh i i think the car wa- the car companies will be okay i think the um uh, uh entertainment industry will be okay this time but you can't keep pushing this would happen well the automobile automobile industry uh, was put to its knees, what, years ago? GM filed bankruptcy mm-hmm. because of these these deals you add on, add on. Everybody wants more and more and more. Eventually, things collapse. And, you know, that that's why I saw this on Twinkie. He said, even a Twinkie can't uh, last forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. yeah, I uh, I know they're considered a snack. I hope people aren't, you know, out there. Oh, I'm a little hungry. I'm going to go eat a few Twinkies. I think of more of them as a dessert. <laughs> I kind of thought they were dessert as well, but uh, yeah, you, you're probably right. But I get uh, what I say, snacking like three times a day that people. So I three I, Twinkies a day. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I don't, that doesn't sound like a good diet. But honestly, J.M. Smucker, who paid four point six billion dollars, there was some some pullback of that. Saying really, that seems like a high amount that. Uh, Smucker paid, uh, but they've been in the snack business, the jam and jelly business for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, old line business, they're not looking for a quick turnaround on it. They're, they're saying, hey, this is going to be something that we can work more on and maybe get them up from a million Twinkies a day to maybe two million <laughs> Twinkies a day. I don't know who's going to be eating all those. It's not going to be me. So. <laughs> yeah, another thing I, th- I thought was kind of interesting, I mean, $101, $181 billion um, in snack snacking revenue from last year mm-hmm. um so i'm not a big snacker and this is you know kind of off on a little tangent here but there's something called experience bias and if i was you know letting experience bias influence me i'd say well i'm not a big snacker so that means nobody else are big snackers yeah. either so this industry you know doesn't have a lot of room to grow but you know and when you're making objective decisions whether it's investing or anything else you have to not let any biases influence you and this is kind of an example of that you know and you're so right on that and i will tell you a story i've I've told this before it's kind of embarrassing but i will tell it anyways uh back when the uh ipod came out from apple uh, people like i'm thinking who's gonna want that stupid thing nobody Mm -hmm. wants that silly that that's gonna fail big time well 
had I bought Apple way back then. <laughs> it said pretty well. But you're right. The experience buys just because we don't eat a lot of snacks every day doesn't mean, again, other people aren't. Again, $181 billion in sales, a lot of people eating those. So it is so important as an investor to step back from your own feelings or your own experience and say, maybe I don't do that, but other people are, especially as you get older. Because, you know, the, and it is hard for me. I mean, I look at these things like, well, what is this new generation doing? Mm-hmm. But I, sh- I shouldn't judge it or whatever. I should look at saying, well, that's what they're doing. This will be where they'll be spending their money. This will be the good investment. Mm-hmm. So it, it is important not to use your own experience many times and think everybody else is doing the same thing. But I am going to try Twinkie. I I I like Twinkies. I Do just like I haven't. I, I'm not a snacker, so I don't eat them. I don't remember the last time. It's probably been 15 years since I've eaten one. But I remember I used to put them in the freezer and you know kind of get them a little hard, so it was more like a dessert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I think when Chase comes back, we'll celebrate at the office. We'll all have Twinkies. <laughs> so don't forget that. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the stock market because you may be worried about investing because of the high levels of the stock market. At Wilsey Asset Management, we have talked about how it's over-concentrated market, and overall, it is still expensive. Now, famed investor Warren Buffett also feels the market is expensive. He has what's known as the Buffett Indicator, which he uses to see when the market is expensive. He compares the Wilshire 5000 Index to the GDP of the country. The perfect market price is when the market has the same value as the GDP. Uh, Buffett points out that the Wilshire 5000 is currently $49 trillion, well above the GDP uh, at $26.9 trillion. To bring the Buffett indicator from a high level of 182% where it is now down to 100, the market would have to decline by 45%. The Wilshire 5000 is a market weighted index of the total U.S. stock market. And so that's why, you know, he compares that mm-hmm. to the GDP. Um, but no one, including Buffett, expects to see a 45% decline in the market. Um, what we've said and agree with Warren Buffett on is that for the next five to 10 years, we will not have as much of a gain in the overall market as the GDP will increase to catch up to the index and normalize that ratio. To make your money in your portfolio going forward, one must must remember it is not a stock market, but a market of stocks, and one has to find good stocks that are of good value with good dividends. This will bring the investor better returns over the next five to ten years. And, and it's so important to, to look at that. I mean, uh, when you're investing, and we always talk about how we own a basket of companies, uh, y- you've got to start looking at companies that are on sale because just going the same path of buying the Apple, the Microsoft, the NVIDIAs, it is not going to work going forward the next five to 10 years for, for investors because it's, and I've seen this and we, we've done this and we show this in our, you know, presentation for people. If you look at the, the S&P 500 over the last hundred years, you'll see these ebbs and flows where it goes up dramatically and then it doesn't do anything for like 10 years. I believe from 2020 to 2030, uh, there's not going to be much gain in the S&P 500. And if you're just doing the index, and, and that's why, you know, uh, I, I'd say even a couple of years ago, oh, the index is the place to be. I said, yeah, index have been popular about three or four times over the last 40 years because it happens every time. The index does well, people get excited about it, then it flattens out and they don't do it. But there are so many opportunities for investors to look at buying food companies, insurance companies, transportation companies, all these businesses that you can buy 
that are on sale. Right now, real estate is going on sale on the commercial side. I'm not saying it's going to turn around tomorrow, but if you had the foresight to say, well, where will it be in two to three years? And we're starting to see some trends in that. I've, I've even heard people starting to buy uh, commercial property in New York City, which <laughs> surprised me. Next will be San Francisco. Right. <laughs> and I think actually they are talking about that. But, but when you're an investor, you can't look at the short-term movements from day to day. You have to say, where will things be in two to three years from now? And, and that's why we tell people, we'll never buy at the absolute bottom, sell at the absolute top. But if you look a little bit longer term, I'm talking two to three years, you can make pretty good money investing. Yeah, and you also can't be chasing returns. I mean, so yeah. many people do that. That's another bias that people have. They let their emotions take over and say, okay, well, you know, I, I made this financial decision two years ago. Now it hasn't panned out the way that I want, but this has done really well. So now I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then they, they pivot over and make a, make a change and then, you know, that doesn't do so well, and then what they if they would have stayed where they were, um, mm -hmm. you know, that starts to pick up, and so people are hopping back and forth all the time, and you know, over over time, it leads to underperformance. And, and the big mistake I'm going to tell people now that the big mistake people are making right now, uh, my portfolio is not doing very well. Oh, I'm down. You know what? I'm just going to sell that, and I'm going to go to that six month CD or that six month T bill, and I can get five percent. Wow, that's going to feel so good. That is such a short-term sighted thing. It's going to destroy your portfolio longer term because what's going to happen in 6 to 12 months? Rates will probably be back down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, your investment went up, you know, 10, maybe 15%. And now you got to buy high. And that's why people always do the wrong thing. They always end up buying high and selling low because of the emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of that going on right now. Um, you know, people really get attracted to those T-bills, you know, five, five, five and a half percent. We haven't seen that in a really long time. Oh, well, you know, I bought this company and it's not doing so well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy these T-bills and then yep. I'll, I'll be making money. Well, you know, part of the problem that these companies have been, some of these companies have been struggling is because of interest rates being so high. And mm -hmm. so once that flips, those companies should start doing well. They should start being able to capitalize. Those yields on those T-bills are going to be coming down. And you're right, Brent, you, you went for the shiny object and in the long term, you're going to be missing out. And, and, and people don't realize, too, that when you, and they get this in their head, like, I got a six-month T-bill. It's going to pay me 5%. No. Two and a half. Two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all you're going to get over the next six months. So you're not really getting that 5% you're thinking about. And it just gets you off track. And if you need short-term money, you need it in six months, you need, need it in a year, by all means, do the CD, do the T-bill, do not mm -hmm. invest in, in equities. That's not going to work well. But if you're investing, I always hated this, where I see people investing long-term money using short-term vehicles. Mm -hmm. That is not the way to do, do well in retirement. And that's why a lot of people, they get to retirement like, oh, don't have as much as I thought. Yeah, because you always try to get the safer route, which is a lower return, versus, you know, you're going to have volatility. We tell people, you're going to have volatility. You're going to have losing, you know, months, losing quarters, losing years. But over at, overall, over a five, seven-year period, you can do pretty well, but you got to handle volatility. Well, people also you know, say, well, I'm, I'm 63. I'm going to be retiring in two years. So that means I have a short-term time horizon. Um, no, you don't. You're right. going to live another 30 years. So that's the way that you need to be investing. So just because you're retiring doesn't mean that uh, you know, you've reached the end of the line. At that point, that's where investing becomes more important because now it's your main income source. And so right. you still need to be making investment decisions that are going to add growth and produce income over the lifetime that you need it for. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's funny now that I am older, you know, people say, well, I'm, you know, I'm 70, you know, 
Hey, you're only a few years older than me. I mean, we're not that old. No, we got many years to yeah. go. No, no, Sandy is not old by any means. And and we do have, I mean, a lot of our clients are in their mid-70s to early 80s. I mean, I, I can't even count the number of clients. And they're doing well. We have now numerous clients in their 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just talked to a client uh, the other day, and he's like 94, doing great. Well, the other thing about it, too, yeah, we, we've got a lot of clients in the 90s, but the other thing about it, too, is if, if you take the approach of, okay, well, you know, I'm in my 70s, now I need to be more uh, more safe and more secure, yep. I, I need to not, not invest money, basically. Um, well, if you would have done that five years ago, what's the total inflation we've had in the last five oh, yeah. years? There's no way that you, if you were investing in something that is quote-unquote conservative, you're able to even maintain pace with inflation. And once you get behind the eight ball, it's really hard to catch back up. So you need to be making the right decisions along the way, even though in the short term it might not be comfortable. In the long term, it's what you need to do. And objectively, right. that's always been the case. You know, and over my lifetime, one thing I've realized, anything that's worked out well or had to work hard for uh, has been difficult. Mm-hmm. But you get rewarded in the long term. It's the same thing with investing. If it's all smooth ride, and, and that's why we talk about so much about the fundamentals, understanding what you're investing into, because it is going to fluctuate up and down. We have, we invest in companies, and sometimes they go down 20 30%. That's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. But we don't care because we had a long-term time horizon, and it's difficult, but you will be rewarded at the end for doing all the research. But you've got to have that right time horizon that you're looking at, and don't get off track by saying, oh, yeah, I'm just tired of being down. I yeah, I can get that T bill at you know five percent. Uh, yeah, six months, two and a half percent. Yeah, <laughs> what you're really getting, which is yeah, point four two percent per month. So. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and 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 what it does, and and then we'll move on here, is it puts you behind the eight ball, because you might, and, and I want people to look at three years down the road. So okay, so yeah, so now you got that T bill. Let's say that yeah, you made five percent for the year. Okay, we'll, we'll give that to you. But then we know that rates are going to come down. We just don't know when. We know it could be six months, maybe 12 months, maybe 18 months. It's going to come down. Mm-hmm. Well, then now you have the, the dilemma. Now you're not going to get 5%. Mm-hmm. You're going to get 4%. You have now maybe missed, we'll say, maybe a 10 15% return on the investment portfolio, which is now a higher priced. So now do you get back in and buy a little bit higher? Or, you, you know, it puts you in that situation. You, you've got to look at the right tool for the right job and stop trying to be, you know, taken in or sucked in to getting a 5% yield on TVs. And you, it, and you hear it on the news. You hear it on the business news all the time. Oh, yeah, but we can get, you know, this over here on the short term. Like, yeah, short term. I, as a financial planner, it must drive you crazy. It, it really does because, again, when, when we're looking at financial planning, we're projecting out 5, 10, 20 50 years in some cases. And so every decision we make today is for that end goal. Now you have shorter term goals and you can make decisions for that and T-bills are are good for that. But, you know, we need to align the decisions we're making with what they're actually for. And people's emotions get so involved in that. Oh, I I really like these T-bills. And it's it's not a good long-term income producing strategy. It's just not going to work well. Right, right. So I kind of got off track a little bit, but uh, all this information does come from our Smart Investing newsletter. It goes out every Friday at uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, we have other things there as well besides these topics here. You will, we'll also talk about in the newsletter, we talk about the UAW strike. We talk about mortgage rates, the writer strike. Uh, we also have in there uh, food expiration dates, a lot of great information there. It is free. What you need to do is go to the website to sign up for it, uh, Smart Investing. 2000.com, smartinvesting2000.com, right in the middle of the page, sign up free. 
Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I, it goes out to quite a few people, and people say, I really love that because there's some interesting topics in there, and it's not one of these old boring ones written just by some marketing company just to try to get people to see your name in front of them. No, I mean, we spend a lot of time reading things and understanding things and saying, hey, this would help people out investing and keep them on the right track. So, again, smartinvesting2000.com, smartinvesting 2000.com. All right. Phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Here's something I do want to talk about. We talked about how, you know, easy, like go to, you know, T-bills and CDs. That's so much better. Uh, right now it makes you feel good. Well, I hate to say it, but there's some people out there maybe talking about things like called premium financed life insurance, like, oh, well, this is very safe, and this will give you a lot of money. Just do this. <laughs> let's explain it. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So I'm going to try to explain this, and on the radio, it, it might be tougher to explain. Usually when I talk about things like this, I've got my whiteboard, and I can draw it all out, and I can make it a little bit more clear. So I'm going to I'm gonna try to go through this, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. So um, premium finance life insurance, it's, it's basically using cash value life insurance as a, a, a tool. So cash value life insurance is sometimes sold as a retirement planning vehicle. Premiums are paid with after-tax dollars, which covers the fees, the cost of insurance, and builds cash value. If enough cash value is accumulated, you can take out loans against it, which is not taxable because it's technically debt. In retirement, the cash value can continue to grow tax-deferred, while loans can be structured as a tax-free income source. The loan balance increases from the withdrawals and compounding interest, but the income or loans that you're taking may continue as long as the loan balance does not exceed the cash value of the policy. And then at death, the life insurance death benefit is used to pay off the outstanding loan balance. So I'll stop right there and, and, and kind of give you an analogy um, of really what's happening. So the easiest way that I've found to explain this is, let's say you've got a house, a million dollar house. So right. you own that house. If there's no mortgage on it, you have a million dollars of equity in that house. You can go to a bank and say, hey, I would like a line of credit or I would like a reverse mortgage using my house as collateral. They'll give you a line of credit with an interest rate attached to it. And then you can withdraw cash from that line of credit, which increases the loan balance that you're borrowing, and then that accrues interest. But right. as long as the balance of that is less than the home value, you're okay. And that right. can continue for you know a period of time. And so it's the same thing with this cash value life insurance. You have this cash value that you've built up in this policy, which once it gets large enough, it'll be able to, to grow a little bit. It still has to pay fees and cost of insurance and things like that. Well, um, and, and those fees increase as people get older, don't they? The cost of insurance does, yeah. yes. And yeah. so cost of insurance is the cost that has to come out to maintain the death benefit, which mm -hmm. all life insurance, if it's actually life insurance and not a modified endowment contract, the death benefit has to be a certain level higher than the cash value, which means you know, the more cash value that you have, the higher the death benefit, which right. means the higher the fees are. And then the older that you get, the closer you are to death, which means the cost of insurance goes up. And so once you stop paying premiums, um, the cash value that you've accumulated is, you know, usually invested in something either whole life. So it's in the general account of the insurance company, or um, if it's an IUL or VUL, it's invested in mutual funds or indexes or whatever. But 
out of that still comes regular administrative fees, um, policy fees, which is all kinds of different fees, and that cost <laughs> of insurance. And so you need that underlying mutual fund or index to grow, still be able to pay those fees and the cost of insurance, and still be able to grow. That's that's right. the hope, um, which which can be difficult. Um, but you know, assuming that that cash value still is able to grow a little bit, you can you know, use that as collateral and then borrow against it. So you're not withdrawing from the cash value. The cash value is still invest in whatever it is and it can still grow over time. You're just using that as collateral, getting a loan now from the insurance company as opposed to a bank. A lot of people say, well, I'm gonna use myself as a bank. You're not, you're just using the insurance company right. as opposed to the bank. You still are accumulating interest. Um, but you know, that, that system can continue. and. One of the challenges, there's a lot of challenges, but one of the challenges for that type of plan is they require substantial amounts of cash value collateral to produce a worthwhile income stream. So you've got to get a ton of cash value in there to be able to borrow against it to be able to actually you know, do anything. If you want 1000 or 5000 or $10,000 a month in withdrawals, you need a ton of cash value to be able to, to sustain that. And to build that necessary cash value, extremely large premiums are required, which can be difficult to add into someone's budget. So this is where the premium financed life insurance comes in. So instead of the policy owner paying the premiums themselves, they go out and obtain a third-party loan to pay the high premiums, and then they make payments on the loan that they use to make the premium. So let's say you can structure life insurance policies that have 200, 500, you know, million dollars a year in premiums, but if you don't want to pay that, you can go get a loan to make those payments, and then you just make payments on the loan. Um, and then the hope is that the cash value will be able to grow faster than the loan balance, and at some point in the future, a second loan can be taken against the insurance cash value to repay the loan used to pay the premiums. And then at that point, additional loans can be taken from the cash value to produce the tax-free retirement income. So it may go without saying, but this type of plan can get complicated and risky pretty quickly. If structured correctly and with some luck, this strategy can produce some retirement income, but there are so many areas where it can fail. And when you invest using debt and fail, the losses are compounded. Now, high net worth and accredited investors sometimes can be attracted to these types of plans um, after believing they need something really sophisticated and, and tax advantage because of their higher net worth. And advisors are happy to sell them because of the massive commissions that come along with it. However, these plans are extremely risky. And in pretty much every case, there's a more appropriate alternative that you can find. And, you know, here's what, what uh, surprised me. I've, I've seen some very smart business people fall for this and it just like it, it no matter how you dress it up it's still <laughs> you're just pouring against life insurance mm -hmm. i don't care what you call it how it's presented uh and the thing too that i realized too we talked about the cost of insurance now if you're you know 50 years old you you could easily live another 20 30 years oh i hope so yeah. you're 50. <laughs> oh yeah 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 so and that's why i said easily um but what i look at is that when we had uh covid we saw the mortality rates increase. Mm -hmm. Now, if that happens, that can make these plans, you know, even more pressure on them because, and I remember insurance companies having problems because the cost of insurance is going up and rates were lower. You get in these situations to where all of a sudden these plans will fail and you have no recourse. It's just like, sorry, just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. I, I, and you brought up the word that I always hate hearing 
is debt. Mm -hmm. And that's all you're doing. And you're borrowing against an asset that may or may not make it down the road. It just, I just, it's always irritated me. And I think what, why these are popular is the commissions, I think, are very large on them. Yes. Yeah, we uh, we actually have a client who um, got into one of these plans. And another thing that I didn't mention, once you're in this, you can't really get out of it because with cash value life insurance, for the first few years of the policy, the cash value is less than the premiums that you put in because so much went to the fees and the right. cost of insurance and everything. So hey, you're, let's not call them fees. So much went to the commission. Well, <laughs> well yeah. And so an insurance but, person yeah. is like, oh, I'm not getting paid from that. Well, indirectly you, you are. are. The insurance right. company is has to charge these fees so they can pay you commission. So yes, you are. Right. Um, <clears throat> but we have a client who's done this and he came to us and said, okay, well now I you know, had some life changes. I want to retire early. Well, it's really difficult because these premiums need to be maintained to build the necessary oh, cash value, which means you have to continue borrowing at extremely high amounts to pay those premiums. Well, the only reason you were able to sustain that borrowing is because you were making money from your work. Now, a couple of things have happened. Interest rates have gone up a whole lot higher than you know anybody right. expected. Um, maybe not anybody, but anyway, interest rates have gone up definitely higher than the original projection has shown. Yes. And so... This person's payments went from forty thousand dollars a year. Now he's paying about fifteen thousand dollars a month in what in, a month? Yes. Oh gosh. In interest payments to the loan, and that's about to go up even more because um, a couple months from now, another chunk is going to come out of that loan or increase that loan amount to make the next premium payment. And you know he's trying to retire, and it's like you know you're in this plan. It's not going the way that it was originally intended. And if we get out now, all the premiums and the interest that you've paid is going to go away um, because it hasn't had the the time to satisfy itself. And even if it does have the time, that's no guarantee because, again, you're borrowing against a collateral asset of cash value life insurance, which isn't created to grow that much. Right. You know, the index itself that it's um, used to, to index off might grow. But again, with all these extra fees that are coming out, it, it's not built to to grow that much. And so there's so many things that can go wrong with it. I mean, this would be like saying, um, if we found a client, if we were to say to them, hey, you've got a house, why don't you take out, uh, why don't you take out a cash out refinance mortgage on the house? Take out 500 grand, give us the 500 grand to invest. You make payments on that $500,000 mortgage that you take out. And then in 20 years, we will, you know, set up a loan and to, to pay back that loan. And then, you know, you can borrow against it and create income. I mean, we would be sued for that. There's right. no way that we would be able to be doing that. So, um, and again, with, with this, with this strategy, advisors like to say, oh, you know, life insurance, it's it's sophisticated. It can be structured all these different ways. Well, in this case, it's not the life insurance that's doing the legwork. It's the leverage. It's the yeah. debt. So that if it goes the right way, you know, you're basically hoping that that margin is is your return, the, um, the cash value delta between the interest that you're borrowing on to pay the premiums. And so you're hoping that there's a spread there and then that's where your return is coming from. But if there's not a spread um, or if the loan that you're borrowing to pay the premiums is at a greater interest rate than the growth, you're negative. And with these amounts, they're extremely large. And so you're negative... It, you know, potentially millions of dollars. Right. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about <clears throat> high net worth and accredited investors getting attracted to these things, when you look at the the high, high net worth people, they're doing similar things, 
but not with life insurance. And right. People always say that, oh, life insurance is for wealthy people. Wealthy people like Walt Disney um, financed the, the start of Disney with his life insurance. No, not really. He used debt to do that. He just happened to use cash value life insurance to do it, but that was the only asset that he had. When you look at wealthy people now, wealthy people have real estate, they have stocks, and they have companies. Mm -hmm. Those assets actually do grow over time. And so as opposed to using cash value life insurance as collateral, um, wealthy, real wealthy people will use real estate stocks and um, businesses. They'll real borrow assets. Real assets yeah. are actually going to have appreciation. They'll grow. Like um, Larry Ellison, for example, uh, founder of Oracle, he bought the entire Hawaiian island of Lanai borrowing against his Oracle stock that he had. It's right. not life insurance. It's He had an asset that actually had a lot of appreciation. He said, well, I could sell that, pay some capital gains. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to borrow against it, you know, maybe at 3%, and then I'm going to use that credit line to go do what I want to do, finance my lifestyle. Um, and I know that the underlying asset that I'm borrowing against is going to outpace the interest rate that I'm borrowing against. And, and it's called an S-block, which is a security back line of credit is what you're talking about, which we do like. And right now, those rates are high. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, rates are going up, so those going up as well. The difference being is that, you know, you look down the road three, four years, those securities will do very well versus life insurance, which won't do very well. And it, it, it just, you want an asset that has a good appreciation to it. And yes, rates will go up. And yes, you're going to pay more on those those S blocks. But if you need, I'll talk about this on KSI tomorrow about where to get big money from. And that's <laughs> one of the things we'll look at. Um, but it, it, it makes so much more sense. And the thing is, on our management fees, our maximum management fee on our lower accounts of 100000 uh, is 1.5%. Mm -hmm. They don't get paid 1.5% for the insurance commissions. I was, Do I was, you have that? I was looking at that. And typically with life insurance, the commission that you get is going to be somewhere between on the low end, 50 to on the high side, maybe 95% wow. of the first year target premium. Right. Now that's target premium. With cash value life insurance, with these IULs and, and, and everything, you're the the only way to have a chance of making it work is to pay as much as you can into it, which means you're paying more than that target right. premium. And so like in the case of the client that we have who's in one of these things, he's paying around $800,000 a year in uh, premiums, or at least he's borrowing $800,000 a year right. to pay the premiums. But the target premium for these policies was around uh, $275,000. Mm -hmm. And so the commission on that target premium was probably somewhere around 200, maybe $250,000 because it, it's based on that target premium. And then if the, if whoever buys the policy pays in addition to the target premium, there might be a little bit of a, a, a trail that you get on that as well. So whoever sold that, you know, might've made two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand $250,000. He might've retired. Yeah, <laughs> he, I know. He did better than the client did. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're definitely not endorsing this. However, no, if no. after hearing all this, you think it's a great idea, come and talk to me. I'll yeah. go get my insurance license and I'll find a policy and I'll sell it to you. <laughs> I'll beat you to that one. <laughs> yeah. I used to have my insurance license, but I, um, I've let it go. But if you want to, you know, if you want to make me $200,000, I'll, I'll go, I'll go get it, get it, get it. Get it. Yeah, and it's just, and I always tell people, Ask what that person's getting paid, and if that doesn't raise an eyebrow when they when they say, "Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get paid two hundred thousand dollars on this," and if that doesn't make you question mm -hmm. what you're doing, and even for and we're talking on the extremes, I mean, life insurance is an important part of financial planning to cover 
if someone passes away. Mm -hmm. It is not a retirement tool that you use. I don't care what that insurance salesman says about, oh, it's great from the IRS and blah, blah. They'll have all these stories about how great it is. It is not to be used for anything other than covering somebody's death if you pass away to create that immediate state for the family. That's what it's for. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and I've talked about this many times over the years. Probably life insurance salesmen hate me because of the fact that I, I always knock it. And I don't knock it. It's good if you need to cover somebody's life to make an immediate estate. Mm -hmm. But anything else other than that, no, it, it should not be used. So if someone comes to your door, knocks on your door, like, hey, I got this great retirement plan using life insurance, close the door and just walk away. Yeah. So, all right, phone number's here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Uh, we also take emails uh, when people want to ask questions as well. Maybe you're working, can't pick up the phone, give us a call. You can send us those emails at uh, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Got one here from uh, a gentleman named Johnny. says, uh, can you on your next show, if possible, look at uh, Carvana? And why did Wedbush Securities upgrade it when they are in such bad financial shape? Uh, their symbol is CVNA. They're in the auto and truck dealership industry. So I looked at that there. Uh, I was surprised. A short on the float side is 45.5% is shorting that stock, which is a very high short. 95% institutional owned. Uh, they have no earnings. Uh, price to sales is 0.4, same as the industry. But here it shows no price to book value, no cash flow, no pay ratio, so not very good valuation ratios. No earnings over the last year. Uh, sales were down 19.3%. Uh, the industry was up 8.6 over the past year. Uh, they don't pay a dividend. Looking at the balance sheet, very important here. You got a current ratio of 1.8, which is not bad. It's above the industry at 1.7, so shows liquidity. The problem that we have is debt to equity is not material, which means they don't have any equity, which means any debt they have is very heavy, I'll put it that way. Industry is at 1.7. Net profit margin for Carvana is a negative 11.1% versus a positive 1.9. Return on equity, very strange number here, 187%. I'd have to actually do the math to actually go to see what the equity is. My, my feeling is the equity is probably very, very low, and they had some type of return over the last 12 months. Look at the stock price. It was at $41.99 on Friday. The high has been $57.19. The low for the past year is $3.55. Let's take a quick look at the analysts to see what the, they say about the uh, earnings going forward. Well, this is the type of business you want to buy. Going out to December 2024, they're looking at losing $2.48. That's after losing $3.69 in 2023. That is based on the mean of 20 analysts. The high uh, is $0.88 cent loss. The low, somebody expects them to lose $4.95. Uh, those numbers, I will say, are improving. Now, you go back 90 days for 2024, the estimated loss was $4.52. Now they're only expecting to lose $2.48. That could be why Wedbush is seeing some positive here. Maybe they see some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, when it comes to investing, I never like to invest in companies that have projected losses going forward. Uh, and, and what I worry about with a company like this, Carvana, is that maybe just when they improve their financial situation, 
well, that's when the economy slows down in two years and now people are not buying cars. Mm. <laughs> so, so I've got to say that Carvana is not on our recommended buy list. It is just one that, um, again, it's just, and I, I didn't even look at the debt level. Uh, the debt, I think, is, is high there. And, and Wedbush, a, a lot of times they will put buys out there on companies because they're looking at more speculation than what we call true investing. And true investing is actually where you invest in a business that you're paying X dollar for those earnings today, and then two, three years down the road, those earnings will be higher, and therefore that company would be worth more. Very simple analysis. There. Yeah, yeah. So. I'm sure their debt level is pretty high. You can't uh, lose money consistently without uh, raising up some debt. Yeah, I, and, uh, yeah and uh, I'm just going to take a quick look at the balance sheet here since uh, we don't have any calls. Did I, did I give out the phone numbers? I give out the phone numbers. Yeah, I want to make sure I'm not cutting somebody off here. But uh, just look at their debt here. Uh, where's their debt level? Um, long-term debt is uh, seven. Let's see, make these are in billions. So seven billion dollars is their long-term debt. Uh, going back just two years ago, that was about a third of that at two point four billion. And their equity, uh, they have a negative equity of six hundred and ninety-seven million dollars. So yeah, that debt is just rising. Um, and, and, and actually, it jumped a lot in, wow, March 2022, uh, it was $3.7 And then it, it jumped uh, the next quarter to $7.2 billion. So something happened in that quarter mm-hmm. to have it jump so dramatically. But no matter where the debt comes from, you know, that's just way too much debt. It's like we always talk about in the presentation, yeah, great to own a million-dollar home unless you own – 1.5 million on it, not a good situation to be yeah. in. So, uh, Jimmy, no, I, I, uh, I, Johnny, I would not be uh, recommending anybody buy Carana. I would say get, get out of it. Um, and I do say good things for the car industry going forward. They're, they're still, I, I believe the average age of the car on the road is still about 12.4 years. So there's a lot of potential there. Now, we do have to see how we get through these these strikes, yeah. you know, what they're going to do. I, I heard Ford seems to be like they they are, seem to be like closer to an agreement now i'm hoping they're not making an agreement that it's going to hurt them down the road mm-hmm. but uh, gm and stellantis are still like nope not not going to give in yet so and i say yet hopefully they don't because you never want to make a deal that is good today and bad tomorrow well i mean what they're asking for is is unsustainable so again like we were saying earlier in the show you can do it just for how long yeah yeah and <laughs> And, and, and I know some people are against me saying, oh, you know, you're, you're for management, you're against labor. I'm not, I'm not against labor, but you, you got to realize that some of these workers are back in Michigan, back east. They don't have where they have to go out and get a million-dollar mortgage for a home. I mean, those homes are probably, what, three four $400,000 back east. For a nicer one, I would for say. For a nicer yeah. one, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with overtime, it's been proven that some of these UAW workers, and again, they, they, they're not the brand new and just started, but they've been there for 15, 20 years. They're, they could make with overtime as much as 150000 a year. That is big money back there. That's a lot of money. I a mean, lot even, of money. Even here, that's yeah. that's a good amount of money. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, everyone wants to make money, and, you know, you want to pay everybody, but it has to be sustainable. And you, you can say, oh, well, these companies have a lot of profits. They're being greedy. Well, it takes a little bit of the greedy side when things are doing well to sustain themselves when things aren't doing well. Right. Right, and, and that's so important because, you know, as a business owner uh, and whether you're running our investment firm or you're running General Motors, you still know that everything's not going to be rosy every single year. Oh, it's going to go up 10% every single year. No, you're going to have something's going to happen some year where you're going to have flat to maybe negative earnings. 
And if you didn't save for that rainy day, you're going to go bankruptcy. Happened to Yellow Truck. Happened to, to Twinkies, Hostess. Yeah, <laughs> you know, almost so, twice. <laughs> twice, yeah. So it, it, it's just something that, and I'm not against labor, but what I have said, and I've written it many times, is that I would love to see him say, oh, well, management gets these big bonuses. Yeah, they're in stock. Let's give labor part of the company as well. Like, okay, you did well this year. Mm-hmm. We'll give you some of the stock as well. So everybody does well, not management against labor. That's just, it's always been that way for what, probably 100 years since uh, the Model T back in 1920 uh, with labor. Um, but it's just something that you have to come to some understanding from the union side. And the union has access to the balance sheet. They have access to the income statement. <laughs> we have access. They, they can mm-hmm. see it, but they don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. They, they want to be like, oh, we're for the labor and so forth. I, I, yeah, you're for the labor, but you have to realize you can't you know, destroy the company that you're going against because then nobody wins. Well, so. yeah, the only reason you would need labor if there's a company to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And, and labor is important. Oh, yeah, it um, absolutely is important. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes the world go round, but so does everything. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the... the conversation of capitalism versus communism communism is like okay labor needs to be um a lot more enforced it, you right. know it, it needs to be compensated more but the only reason labor can exist is because there was capitalistic ideas that created right. the companies that created profits right and and also too i mean if you want to work hard uh you can work hard i said you can make up to one hundred fifty thousand a year now that's another thing too like well you know management's making all this money and so forth i'm sorry Usually most people probably in, in the union are probably working 40 hours a week. When you're in management, you're probably working at least probably 60 to 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You know, And so that means, okay, so if you're working 40 hours a week, you worked maybe 50 hours a week in, in the union, you could probably make well over six figures. Mm-hmm. You know, So if you work hard, you get paid more. If you don't, you don't. So we, we got to come with this happy medium. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see what, what Ford actually does going forward because that could be a major problem. If they agree to something, it does make GM and Stellantis not look so good. But maybe Ford's going to have problems down the road three, four years mm-hmm. because they gave in too much. Yeah, yeah. So. And it's not something that we want these companies to abuse their employees or anything like that. It's just it needs to be um, a relationship. I mean, companies give money to their employees in exchange for labor. And so there's got to be... Um, in, in a market there, there should be able to f- find an equilibrium of that trade-off. Right, right. So well, well, let's talk about something else that's in the news quite a bit, and, and I'm talking about the mortgage rates because uh, they have been have been somewhat of a, a, an issue lately, and i got to find, uh, let's see, I, I missed my page here, unfortunately. Um, I got my pages all out of whack because we, uh, we're talking about many different things here. Um, Shoot, I can't find the right page. Mortgage rates. The next one is the UAW strike. So mortgage rates, then UAW strike. Like that. Okay. All right. So, so yeah. So let, let's look at that then on the mortgage rates because part of the reason for the higher mortgage rates is that investors are demanding higher yields to compensate for the uncertainty in the economy. Also, demand for mortgages has fallen off dramatically, especially with the Fed who used to purchase massive amounts of mortgage bonds, virtually shutting off buying any mortgage-backed securities. What this has led to is nearly a 3% spread for the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year mortgage, which is well above the average over the last 50 years of about 1.75%. The last time we experienced such a large spread was during the financial crisis in 2008. 
Uh, we would like to say we will see this change soon, but I hate to say I don't see any changes in this scenario until perhaps mid-2024, maybe later. Yeah, and this was such an important thing I brought off for people because I think it's tied directly to 10-year treasury, which is very close. Mm -hmm. But there's other factors, supply, demand. And we talked about the Fed, which I don't think people realize this, that, and I, I forgot about this myself, where the Fed was buying a lot before. Mm -hmm. They're not doing that. So to get people to buy more, and we're talking about the investors for these mortgages, you got to raise the rate. Mm -hmm. So the spread is the highest, what I say, the highest uh, since 2008. Mm -hmm. I don't see that changing going forward in the immediate future. I, I don't either. And and that's, I had someone in uh, a couple of days, days ago that said, okay, well, we refinanced our mortgage and we got a 1.75% mortgage on it a couple of years ago. That will never happen again. And yeah. it's not just that. Wait, they got 1.75? Yeah. Wow. That, 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 <laughs> that's the best. I've heard two, two and a quarter, but yeah. never 1.75. I think, I think well, I've seen a couple people with 1.75, and I think that's the best I've ever seen. But it's not just the fact that interest rates were relatively low, and then they were dropped down to nothing to spur on the economy because of COVID and everything. It's also the fact that the Fed was buying these mortgages. And mm -hmm. so the, the demand of 30-year mortgages was so low, and now not only have interest rates gone up because of what the Fed is doing, but they're now also not buying the mortgages that they were so that there's both the supply and demand influence of that. And that's part of the reason why we've seen now mortgages that are in the sevens as opposed to, you know, one, seven, five, two, three percent uh, just a couple right. of years ago. And they, 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 they do talk to, I mean, it, it is very hard. If you've got a, we'll even be generous and say a 2% mortgage, it is very hard to walk away from that mortgage. I mean, you really have to have like a growing family where when you got that, well, it was just you and your wife, and now you've had you know, two sets of twins, you've now got four kids, you've got a two-bedroom house, you, you've got to move on. You, mm -hmm. you can't stay in that house even though you've got a great mortgage. But that's the exception, not the rule, and I think most people are saying, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to leave here for a 1.75 mortgage. E even a 3 3.5% mortgage, it's, it's a tough one to, to walk away from. And uh, you know, the builders are building as fast as they can, but even so, it's still pushing up the mortgage rates where I, I believe mortgage rates are now comfortably in the sevens plus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it seems like in the past, recently in the past couple of weeks, they've they've gone up. I mean, they've been going up for a while now, but they were, you know, in the sixes a few months ago over the summer. Now we're, yeah, comfortably in the sevens for a conforming, conforming um New normal balance loan. And, and the Fed came out uh, last week, and, and at first things were fine, like, yep, they're not going to increase it. But then they come out with this talk, like, well, yeah, there could be another one next time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and I, I wonder, it's so hard because everybody's trying to speculate what they're thinking. Part of me feels they're saying that because once they say, yes, we're done, then inflation is going to come back pretty quickly. Yeah. So people, oh, everything's done. Mm -hmm. So if they have that, fear that there's going to be another one. We saw what happened. Market went, went down because, mm -hmm. oh, there's going to be another one. Uh, you may not actually have to use that uh, stick to hit somebody. You just kind of wave that stick and it's like, oh, it's still there. I better be careful. That's a good point, Brandon, because, I mean, they are not trying to crash the economy or no. anything. They're, they're just trying to get inflation Sometimes under we control. Think are, Sometimes we? we think they are. Sometimes we think they are. It's like, Jerome, what are you doing? <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, their their job is to keep inflation under control, and I think you're right. I mean, things in the overall economy aren't as bad as people thought they were going into this, and so I, I think 
um, the Fed is probably thinking, well, if we say that we're done, you know, it's probably going to ramp up again. And they have said consistently all along that we would rather overcommit as opposed to undercommit yeah. and, and not do enough. Yeah. And, and it's very frustrating as an investor or money manager because, yep, we, we went down uh, and, and we kind of knew that was going to happen. But we do have a good economy. And I'm not saying we're in a boom economy. Uh, we've already had a recession. I think it was like last, when was it last year? We had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So, so we technically, had, yeah. Technically, mm-hmm. we, we had one. Um, but we, I think we can get through this with a soft landing mm-hmm. if the Fed doesn't continue going too far over. Yeah. And, and I, I am concerned. I'm hoping as I'm, I think it's called saber rattling. That's what it's called. Um, that they're just saber rattling on the fact that they uh, are going to raise rates when they really don't, because if not, and they do it in November, December, it, it, we're not going to have a good year this year. And, and it's, it's, it's frustrating because we've got a good job market. We've got a decent economy. Prices have come down. We had a very good CPI, PPI report, uh, was it last week? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a little bit frustrating knowing that they may go too far, which as you pointed out, they said they might mm-hmm. just to be on the safe side. Right. Yeah. So uh, the job market uh, is showing some signs of uh, slowing down, but there is still nothing to worry about at this time. In August, the percentage of American workers who feared getting laid off rose to 13.8%, which was the highest since April 2021. This can also... Uh, be considered perhaps good news at the Federal Reserve has been watching the job market closely and is looking for a slowdown to ease wage inflation. And, and you know, and, and the Fed does look at uh, wages because that's, we are, uh, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think about 70% of our economy now is service-based. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem is that when wages keep going up, you know, Powell knows that this, this is problem. This is more money coming in because 70% in service, wages going up, which appears to be slowing down. Mm-hmm. And this was, was some good news as well. And we don't want, you know, unemployment at 10, 8%, 10%, but if it's stabilized and inflation stays low, we can get through this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and low being, you know, CPI around, uh, and I know he wants it down to 2%. I, we, we, <laughs> we, we've done a thing going back to the 70s, the average since the 70s has been about uh, 3.5, I think, is what we showed at our client event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and 3.5 is fine. I yeah. mean, I'd, I'd be happy with 3.5 yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah, and I think he's thinking if you overshoot down to 2, then you got years you can kind of rest because then it will rise back to 3.5. Right. But if you go to 3.5, then short-term it could rise back to 4.5 maybe. Right. So I, I, I'm trying to understand him and like everybody – but the thing you cannot do, you cannot not invest. You cannot do that six-month T-bill right. just because, hey, great, I'm going to get 5% here. No, no, don't, don't, don't do that because I still say our country is still the greatest country in the world. We do have our problems, but it still works no matter who's the president, no matter who's in Congress, who's in the Senate. We, you know, we've had these problems for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. but the economy, the, the, the concept does work. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that, Brent. A lot of people are like, oh, well, if we can get a different president or in or if we can keep the same president in or if politics change or, you know, this is happening, China's doing this. There's always something crazy going on. But, um, you know, that's where all those biases come in. We don't yeah. want the emotions to influence. There's always something happening. There's always, you know, some political event going on. There's always some um, foreign act going on mm-hmm. but when it comes to investing is this company making money what are their earnings what are their projected earnings 
Yeah. What's their balance sheet? Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Sign up for the newsletter. Thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. We'll be back next week. Have a great day. So amusing to think